You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. This is our second look at a prayer from Jesus. It's recorded in John chapter 17. Last week we began it and it's going to continue for a few weeks. This is By the way, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the entire Bible, again, is John chapter 17. Now, John was written by one of Jesus' nearest and dearest friends who was there for all of Jesus' ministry, including his death, burial, and resurrection. And when we open to John 17, we find that Jesus is just hours away from his death on the cross where he will suffer and die in our place for our sins. And when you are nearing the end of your life, the things that you do are most important. The things you talk about are the most important things. So here Jesus stops and he prays. This prayer is in three parts. Last week we looked at how Jesus prays for himself. This week and next how Jesus prays for Christian believers. And after that, how Jesus prays for non-believers. The big idea is this. Jesus, in his prayer, prays for everybody because Jesus loves everybody. And one of the greatest, surest ways to build a relationship is to pray for one another and with one another. So if you didn't do this based on last week's sermon, your homework assignment this week is to pray with someone and to pray for someone. That's really a surefire way to build relationships. In a world that has very few loving, healthy, devoted relationships, One of the shortest distance between two people is prayer. And as we pray together, we're building a relationship with God and we're inviting God in to help us build relationships with others. Having said that, do you know that Jesus today prays for you? We'll say more about this next week, but let me ask, how many people regularly, consistently pray for you? How many people do you pray for? Well, Jesus prays for you. And when Jesus prays, it reveals the things that he thinks are the most important for you and for me to know. And he invites us through that prayer to live in obedience to the things that he's praying for so that his prayer is fulfilled. Today, we turn to John 17, starting at verse 6, where Jesus talks about the difference between the word and the world. Here's Jesus, more of Jesus' prayer. He says, I have revealed to you, I have revealed you, sorry, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now the you in this prayer is the Father. Jesus is praying to the Father. And what Jesus is saying is that if you're a Christian, you're in the world. But you have been chosen by God, picked by God, delivered by God out of the world. He says, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. 
they knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. What Jesus is saying here, first of all, he is right on the verge of dying. These are the last hours of Jesus on earth. He knows he's about to go to the cross for our sins. And then he's going to rise. And then he's going to ascend back into heaven, back on his throne. And what he prays for is our understanding of our relationship with the world. Because one day, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you will follow him to be reunited with him in heaven. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Well, knowing that that's our destiny, how do we live until that day? Well, there are two things we need to know. Number one, we're in the world. And number two, the world is opposed to God. That the world is actually dark and demonic and deadly. It is not of itself good and glorious and godly. When Jesus uses the word world, it's a word that is used in seven different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to the whole planet, sometimes all the people, sometimes a group of people or a nation or a culture or a fallen system. It's not talking about the nations here because God loves all nations, all races. We will read in Revelation chapter 5 that people from all nations and races and cultures will surround the throne of Jesus and worship him forever. What Jesus means when he uses the word world, he's referring to it as a fallen, corrupt system. You need to know that God creates, but Satan corrupts. God created this wonderful planet, but Satan corrupts it through sin. God creates truth, and then Satan corrupts that with lies. God creates life, and Satan corrupts that with death. God creates light, and Satan corrupts that with moral and spiritual darkness. And when Jesus speaks of the world, he speaks of that God has made a culture, but Satan has corrupted that culture. So let me tell you something that sounds offensive, but is also very insightful, and that is there is no culture on earth that is sacred. We think we can't tell those people to change because that's their culture. We can't tell those people to change, that's their lifestyle. But just so you know, all cultures fit into the bucket of worldliness. Worldliness means that which is demonic, fallen, corrupted, anti-God, anti-kingdom. When all is said and done, the kingdom of God will come down from heaven and all the cultures of the earth will be no more. All there will be left is the kingdom culture of God. And so the world is opposed to the kingdom of God. And this shows up in pol politically, economically, spiritually, 
educationally. Make no mistake. Much of curriculum in schools, government systems, financial institutions, the the entertainment industry, much of that, if not most of it, is worldly. It's against God. So what Jesus is telling us is that there is a conflict between the world and the word. And what the word says is different than what the world does. And so the question is, if there is conflict between the word and the world, which one needs to change? Several years ago, I was in a regional church meeting. We were in a different denomination back then. And a debate rose over an issue of human sexuality. The position that was being put forward was something that the Bible speaks against on numerous occasions. And and one of the leaders in attendance didn't agree with the Bible, didn't like what the Bible had to say. And so they raised the question, and I'm quoting, can't we just lay the Bible aside and argue from reason? It's like, I know what the Bible says. I don't like what the Bible says. So can't we just edit, alter, change the word of God, or better yet, why don't we just not pay attention to it? There are so many instances where what the word says is different than what the world does. And the question is, if there is conflict between the word and the world, which one needs to change? As Christians, we would say, well, the world needs to change. And the world would say, no, the word needs to change. That's the essence of the conflict. That's the heart of the controversy. So if you love Jesus and you read the Bible and you're trying to live out biblical principles, what you're going to find is resistance and conflict. How many times have you not wanted to share your beliefs or expose your faith, even to family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. If that's the case, then you know there's hostility from the world. What Jesus is praying is that we would have a profound confidence in the word of God, that we would be willing to endure any resistance from the world And why would we be willing to do that? Because we love the people of the world enough to risk it. And if people are believing what's untrue, and that's leading to death, what more loving thing could we do? You see, there are basically two ways to view the Bible. One is we are in authority over it. Our culture is in authority over it. So culture doesn't like gender. We'll change that. Culture doesn't like sexuality. We'll alter that. So it's like we'll take God's word and we'll update it because we now have more (laughs) enlightenment. We've moved beyond God. Okay, that's one way. But what do we believe? We believe the word of God is the only perfect thing on earth. We believe it is is entirely trustworthy and true. We believe that we don't change it, 
God sent it to change us. We don't believe that we edit it. We're seeking to live by it. And at any point that we disagree with the word of God, then we have succumbed to the pattern of this world and we need to repent and have our lives get back in alignment and back in agreement with God. If we can do that, then we are answering Jesus' prayer. Jesus continues his prayer. And he's talking about his people as a family. So those who believe the word of God are in the family of God. He continues. He says, I pray for them. That's the Christian. That's who Jesus is praying for. And hear me on this. This is remarkable. Jesus knows that he is going to be betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. He is going to be falsely accused, arrested, beaten beyond recognition, and put to death. And what does he do? He stops and he prays. And this reveals that first priority is always prayer. That if you don't have time to pray, then your priorities are out of order. Here, Jesus, in the most difficult moment of his life, he's not selfish, he's selfless. So how many of you are like me, that when you're suffering, you're selfish? When I'm sick, I think the world should stop rotating on its axis, somebody bring me chicken soup and rub my head until I fall asleep. Notice I didn't say my hair, but just my head. (laughs) Jesus is revealing that while he is suffering, he still has compassion and empathy and an awareness for others. That's supernatural. So he just said, I pray for them. He says, I am not praying for the world. Jesus doesn't want certain forms of entertainment, certain cultural narratives, certain ideologies or philosophies to flourish and be blessed because those are death, not life. Those are Satan, not God. So he doesn't pray for certain things to succeed. I'm not praying for the world, that fallen, corrupt system that we're a part of. But for those you have given me, because they are yours. You see, people are God's priority. He says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. There are many metaphors for believers in the New Testament. One of my favorites is family. God is our father. We are his kids. And Jesus here is going to the cross. He's going to go into the tomb. And he's going to return to heaven. And what he says is, Father, I haven't lost one of your kids. 
I think we all wander away from time to time. Maybe you've even run away from God. The good news is God keeps pursuing. He doesn't give up. Maybe that describes some of you. What Jesus is saying is that God is the Father, the Christians are a family, we are the children of God, and He doesn't lose anyone. If you wander, He will bring you back. But how many of you has Jesus done that very thing? So if this is true, and Jesus says, Father, I haven't lost any of your kids, this begs the question, what about Judas? Remember, Jesus picked 12 guys to be his disciples. They were with him for three years, mentored by him. And one of those guys, in the end, was a total betrayer. His name was Judas Iscariot. What about Judas? Did God lose him? Sometimes the question is asked, can a Christian lose their salvation? It's the wrong question. The question is, can a father lose his child? Can God the Father lose one of his children? Answer, no. It's not a kid who saves themselves. It's not a child of God who saves themselves. That we are saved, we are adopted. We belong to the Father who never leaves us, never forsakes us. So what about Judas? Jesus concludes his, this section of the prayer by saying this. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. All right, a little bit more about Judas. We're in John's gospel. So how has John prepared us for this? What has he portrayed about Judas leading up to John chapter 17 and this prayer. Let me give you three different places. In John 6 verse 70, Jesus is with his disciples and he says, one of you is a devil. (laughs) That'd be an awkward moment, right? But just know that even though there were 12 guys, there were only 11 hearts devoted to him. You can go to church and not have a heart for Jesus. You can even go to seminary and not have a heart for Jesus. There were 12 present, but only 11 hearts devoted. That means Judas was aligned with Satan. And then we're told in John 12, verse 6, that Judas was a thief. He was the money keeper for the disciples. And what he would often do is help himself to the money. But as we look at Judas, let me ask you this. Are you honest at work? Because we can look at Judas and say, I can't believe he stole. But those of you that are in management or you own a company, you know that employee theft, meaning out the back door, usually costs companies more than actual theft out the front door. We need to be careful when we look at Judas that we don't do this with a religious heart and say, what a terrible guy. But with a repentant heart saying, am I failing? At work, am I a good employee? Am I getting paid to do what I'm supposed to be doing? 
Judas was a thief. And even when those times were hard for Jesus' ministry, Judas is still stealing. And then the third, John 13, 27. As this Thursday night in which Jesus is praying, opened up with the Last Supper, and we read that Satan enters Judas. That means he's an unbeliever. Because a Christian is filled with the Spirit of God, and they cannot be fully possessed, overtaken, overrun by the demonic. That ultimately Judas, for his whole career, was working with and for Satan until he finally got so opened up in his life that he only made room and became an agent of the devil. All this to say that Judas did not lose his salvation. He never had it. Judas was one who faked having faith. So let me, let me tell you something. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can fake it. Judas was a guy who didn't lose it. He never had it. Now here's the good news. Of all the true children of God, Jesus loses no one. How do you know if you're a true child of God? If you can genuinely say from your heart that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that you truly believe he died on the cross in your place for your sins, but that God raised him to where he is now fully alive, ruling and reigning. You cannot say that if you have not been given the gift of salvation. That's how you know you're a true child of God. That leads to this. A household of God is like one big blended family. Blended families can be glorious and they can be problematic. Some part of the family is used to doing things this way. Another part of the family, you know, we're used to doing things a different way. The church of Jesus Christ is like that. We're made up of a lot of local families. But the big picture is one, we are one blended family. And as Jesus prays, he prays that we will all be one just as God is one. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we know it is difficult to have love and unity in one church, let alone the sum of all churches. And think about all the churches. There are Orthodox, there's Roman Catholic, there are Protestant. And among the Protestant branch, there are many denominations. But when you peel back all the layers, those that are the true Christian churches will have certain things in common. That the Bible is God's word. That we are sinners by nature and by choice. That God created the world. That Jesus is God become a man. That Jesus lived without sin. He died on the cross in place of your sins. That he rose from death. And salvation is trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Now, those are the things that are central, which means there are other things that we can disagree on, like style of worship or methods of teaching. 
We can disagree on those things without being disagreeable <laughs> because, you know, the only place where everybody thinks alike about all things is a cult. Any of you have family members you disagree with? Don't raise your hands because <laughs> they're probably right there with you. Welcome to the family of God. But what I hope happens is we value relationships over issues. Some might say, no, 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 what about the truth? And what I would say is if you believe someone is wrong, by loving them and building a relationship with them, you're in a better opportunity to help them learn. So let's try to connect before we correct so that we are sure to treat others the way God treats us. So this is about being biblical and relational, and those are the keys to our unity as a church family. So we exist to love you in the name of Jesus Christ and to love the lost into the kingdom of God. We hope that you feel loved here, served here, encouraged here, and are able to receive that experience and through the power of the Holy Spirit, impact others around you with the name of Jesus Christ and to the glory of God the Father. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.